dumb fun. Somehow, heartbreak feels good in a place like this. Musical the movie the podcast. Musical the movie the podcast. Musical the movie the podcast with Andy and Steph. Wow, welcome in to Musical the Movie, the podcast. How you doing, Steph? I'm doing great. I'm really feeling the magic of our queen, Nicole Kidman, as I <laughs> listen to the intro song today. We saw her tonight, when, or last night, when we went and saw Black Panther. We saw her open up the, uh, we saw her open up the, open up the show and, you know, give her a standing ovation, <laughs> as we always do. Uh, Steph, it's, we're here, it's episode, um, now this is the part I never prepare for. Nine? Nine? nine episode, eight, let's nine. call it episode eight or nine. Um, look, it's one of the episodes yeah. of Musical, the movie, the podcast. Uh, I get, let's address this real quick. Last week, I talked about how Tina, our third chair of the show, called the show Empty Empty P, which <laughs> is not how I prefer it be pronounced. It's M-T-M-T-P. No, I have great news. I have just the best news, yeah. which is that we've solved it. Well, your yeah, your brother in law Jeff solved it. Yeah. Uh, so so we're we're Muth Mothpo. <laughs> when he promoted just rolls the, right off the tongue. He promoted the show on Instagram as Muth Mothpo. Mothpo musical the movie the podcast. It's so easy. Muth Mothpo. Muth Mothpo. Um, I don't care for it. Uh, <laughs> I'm strongly pro. It's not the new normal. Uh, but you know what? I am beholden to the fans, Steph. You know, I've always said that. Mm-hmm. So, Steph, we're here uh, to talk about a movie from... Uh, let's let's take you back. It's 1939. Ooh. Adolf Hitler is running <laughs> Rules the airwaves. <laughs> in Germany. Uh, the Andrews sisters rule the airwaves, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and a movie gets dropped in theaters called The Wizard of Oz. It's Ooh. not even in the top two Wizard of Oz-based musicals. But <laughs> we're going to talk about it here today. Uh, but it's the first one. It's it's the OG text. Well, the OG text was a book. Well, we'll talk about that too a little bit. <laughs> okay. Can we start with you? Yeah. What's your What is your relationship to this movie? You know, my relationship with Wizard of Oz is that it's basically as ubiquitous for me as... It's as ubiquitous as, like, going to the dentist for me. <laughs> like, it's just something that's, like, been there my whole life. <laughs> and, like, it's, it's just going to happen whether I want it to or not. And so I've never... Until we, we were re- prepared for this podcast, I've never, like, sat down and watched it as an adult. I'll say that. Like, I feel like maybe, like, you didn't know that there were going to be talking trees, for example. I don't know if that's true. I don't remember if that's true. But yeah, I'd love to track that. I did get pretty excited when the talking trees came on, and then almost nothing that cool happened for the rest of the movie. <laughs> um, you had one moment of glory. Yeah. But so, yeah, for me, it was just... And, and I, I had this thing in my head where I'm like, is this a Thanksgiving movie? Why do I feel like this is a Thanksgiving movie? It turns out I'm not crazy about that, that, like, TBS, I think, airs it every mm-hmm, Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's why we're sort of putting it in this slot here. It's going to, this is going to, uh, the listener, of course, knows it's November 14th today. They're listening to it right away as it drops. And so, yeah, so that's why it's here. Uh, I have no, I have no relationship of note to The Wizard of Oz. What is your relationship to The Wizard of Oz stuff? So, I mean, it's omnipresent, as you've discussed. So this is, we're for sure back to one that I don't remember seeing for the first time. I don't, I guess we didn't really talk about it, but like my, my mother as a, as one of her parenting techniques would often invoke like famous witches or like famous (laughs) mean people, um, as a way to, uh, you know, like it's very allegorical. She's, she's 
of German heritage. It's very German to like tell a tell a fairy tale that has a moral. And so I want a list of everyone in the early nineties that your mom considered a witch or a mean person. She's like, Tipper Gore is gonna get you if you don't finish your vegetables. <laughs> okay, I will give you at least the top three. Okay. It's um number one with a bullet is Miss Minchkin from A Little Princess. Okay. Which we have discussed as a movie you have not seen and God is that just really sad. Okay, and I'm a big um, we're fix fan. It. I know. Um, number two is This Witch, which is why I mention it. Um, and then number three is probably um, The Witch from a, a very specific animated version of The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe that we would often rent from my, our church. Okay. <laughs> you would rent from the church library? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the church had a, a video library, and that was one of them. And that witch was just, like, real scary. I need you to understand how uncommon it is to hear the words, we would rent that movie from my church. <laughs> I don't, I don't know how to, that's not what this podcast is about. Okay, this fair podcast enough. Fair is enough. about Wizard of Oz. Um, so that was, it was just sort of like, you know, omnipresent. Um, but then I, in high school, was a stage manager for a production, our, our high school production of Wizard of Oz. It was my junior year. Um, it was, I mean, we've discussed that our, that my high school theater department was kind of a big deal. Um, and so being a stage manager was like a big, big deal because you were sort of like the one in charge of keeping this big production in line. And there were three of us. And uh, so I just, I have a lot of like residual stress about about setting Munchkin Land and like <laughs> So when you getting... see Munchkin Land, you're like, oh my God, we got to get everyone in place. Truly. I'm like, I'm like picturing like holding that we had like 60 children under it was about it was like a size thing because the girl who played dorothy was like 4 11 <laughs> so all of the munchkins had to be like under four feet tall um and which meant they were tiny so yeah just like they would like come on holding hands and then hide but it was also just it was one of my great high school theater experiences it was full of good hijinks like great like classic you know sh- shit we were up to backstage moments i almost had this thing where I was like, oh, I can't swear. I'm talking about high school. <laughs> Can I say that it's surprising to me that this thing still goes on on stage because I, there's not a lot of bops in it. You know what I mean? Like, and as I said, it's not, it's not, there are two better Wizard of Oz musicals than the <laughs> Wizard of Oz. And well, so, importantly, this is my next point is that importantly, Wicked doesn't exist at this point. Like uh, Wicked comes out the year that we do the Wizard of Oz, which is also like, the only reason that I mentioned it is that they're really intertwined here. And as we talk about, like, I'm sure we're going to talk about all the other adaptations and we'll get to them in future episodes. So, like, I'll save my relationships to those things for those episodes. But it's very much entwined with Wizard of Oz for me. In fact, our director wouldn't let the two girls who were playing the Wicked Witch, he, like, banned them from listening to the soundtrack or going to see it because he was like i don't want you to have that shit like that's not what this is about we don't have sympathy for for wow it kind of sounds like your director was a real uh victor fleming the guy who directed this (laughs) sounds like it was the same way he treated judy garland that feels real accurate okay wait and then i have i do have one more thing which i know this is just really long but um so i it hasn't come up much on the podcast but i was an economics major and in undergrad and there are a lot of of theories about like various political interpretations of the wizard of oz and so they're supported by a lot of different evidence and so there's this is by no means settled and i would love to 
talk about this later, like with our guests too. But um, one of them is about that it's like uh, an anti-gold standard argument that the book is the the in the book she has silver slippers instead of ruby slippers and she's supposed to follow the yellow brick road which is the gold standard to prosperity but then when you get there that guy is a sham and a fraud and it turns out that her silver slippers which represent bimetallism are actually the key to success and anyway there's just a little bit of an economics major moment for this story <laughs> of course i know what bimetallism is why don't you explain it to all the dummies that listen to the podcast no it doesn't matter you don't need to worry about it at all. Just like there was a thing about the Wizard of Oz and the gold standard. That's what you can take away. And also, if you want to like get like hit me up IRL, we can get stoned and I'll talk about it. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> uh, well, why don't we bring in our guest then, Steph? I would love that. Would you like to go first? This woman is one of the premier musical comedians around Chicago. She is in the musical improv show Baby Wants Candy at Second City, as well as the improvised hip hop musical Shamilton at Second City, uh, as well as. Uh, uh, she's an ensemble member at the uh, I.O. doing long form improv as well. It's Darren Robinson, everybody. Hi, Darren. Hi. How are Hi. you? I'm doing well. How are you guys? Oh, so good. You can see that Steph is, has our background set to, um, you know, the sort of Tin Woodsman's uh, house. You can see a munchkin hanging himself in the background. <laughs> Wait, hey, can where? you really? No, not really. But that's, <laughs> a, that's an urban legend about this that was movie. Not, <laughs> that was not my intention of this picture. But I do. That is a story. I, I have heard that urban legend. Um, and I'm like, wow, you would think that things would get better in Hollywood. But then you have Harvey Weinstein and all this stuff. It's crazy. Things really have, have been bad. There's some real Weinsteinian stuff going down on the set of this movie that we're yes. going to get into later. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, you want to introduce our other guest, Steph? Yeah. Danny Pike is a Chicago area actress. She recently starred as Audrey in the production of Little Shop of Horrors that was directed by last week's guest, Matt Seiler. Welcome, Danny. Hi. Hi. <laughs> What's up? How are you? Uh, I'm so good. I'm so happy to be here. I'm just honored to be here to talk about this today. I just reached out to you cold after I saw you in Little Shop because of how amazing you were. I talked to, about it a little bit on last week's episode, but you know, I sort of just got random gold star tickets to go see the previews of Little Shop and found myself driving to a high school in Lake Forest <laughs> to this beautiful Citadel Theater. Didn't know it was a high school until I pulled into the parking lot and I'm like, is this a high school? But it's a just a real uh, theater in this in this that's inside this high school. Yeah, it's so weird, um, I know. Yeah, which Matt said, Matt told us last week that it, you can still get intimidated by high school boys at any age. Uh, <laughs> so true. But, so true, bestie. But, but it was it was such an amazing experience seeing it that I brought back stuff to see it again. And in particular, I mean, you just ran away with this thing. Again, I warned Darren that we were going to we were going to we were going to gush about you for a minute. But like, can we just talk about what what? Like what Ellen Green does with Audrey in the movie even is like very good. It's it's a very good performance, but Audrey doesn't have a lot of agency in that script. Right. And you just did little things with your performance to uh, fix that. Like, do you want to talk about that? Absolutely. I mean, it, Audrey, though a dream role, I just never anticipated that I would play her. And part of that is just the way that I've been conditioned as an actress and a singer working in a big city is, you know, or even getting my degree, you know, type and 
You're not, you know, the fragile uh, damsel in distress type. You're not an ingenue, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So I guess that subconsciously got to me on some on some level, even though as like an independent feminist woman, I'm like, I can play whatever role I want to play and nothing should limit me. <laughs> so, you know, those two things can exist at the same time, your doubts and your confidence. So I went to this callback and I was like, I don't know, man, I, I'm not wearing the same thing as any of these other girls. And I, I, I don't know, I didn't feel very good about it. And when I got the part, I was just floored and on day one of the process talking to the director Matt Seiler I realized that they they shared my vision for Audrey that she is a real fully three-dimensional human being who has a lot of complexities and inner life and is intelligent and is a person not just a walking sex symbol or a especially with the way the show talks about domestic violence i never want to oversimplify or poke fun at or take away the reality and the gravity um that you know a woman can only be in an abusive relationship if she is not smart enough to get out of it or too weak to get out of it i said that's all garbage i want my audrey to make the statement that i'm a real person and matt and i kind of came up with the perfect way to sum it up which is, what if Audrey isn't dumb? She's kind. And that was sort of the starting point from which we built Audrey. And I mean, I could spend the rest of my life, you know, doing feminist revisions of female (laughs) characters. And we'll talk about that with The Wizard of Oz, too. But um, if that's all I spent the rest of my life doing, I would be happy. So (laughs) frankly, that sounds like a podcast for you where you just make every movie feminist. You know, it needs to be done. how How to fix it. Yeah. The Expendables, go. I'm the woman to do it. Let's do it. (laughs) Just like a a quick example for me. I mean, first of all, so when I saw you the first time, I was just like, when you were singing during Skid Row, the the group number, I was like, oh, I think that she's going to make me cry later when she sings Somewhere That's Green. And then you were singing Somewhere That's Green, and I was like, oh, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. And then right as you go into your last note, your eyes started to tear up and all of a sudden I'm rolling tears and I was like, <laughs> fuck, you got me. But like, so an example for me of like just little things that you did were like, so we talked a little bit on our podcast when we talked about Little Shop about how um, the song Suddenly Seymour is kind of sounds like it was written by a fuck boy who <laughs> has a big problem with makeup. <laughs> yeah. And he, like it talks a lot about makeup in, in that song. Take and it off. Like, Wipe the makeup away. You don't need it. You're, you don't need to hide your face. And in the movie, he hands uh, Audrey that Kleenex and she starts using it to try and wipe her makeup away, which is funny because that makeup is so set on Ellen Green's face that it's not going right. anywhere. You're going to need like a Neutrogena <laughs> wipe. Come on, be honest with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you take, the, you take the Kleenex and you just use it to just sort of dab at your eyes a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, wow. I just saw her. Audrey just came on the Zoom call. <laughs> and then Darren, here's my question for you. So you, you, you did my show recently at the Laugh Factory. You played Serena Williams on my roast of Michael Jordan. Uh, it was an incredible so night. You were fun. incredible. I had a great time. Uh, but so my question is, what is your history with like theater? Because you kind of seem like a theater kid who took that hard turn into comedy. That is absolutely correct. So yeah, I did. Okay. Um, my first musical that I was in was actually The Wiz, which is like the Whoa. Motown version Love of The Wiz. When I was eight years old, I played a munchkin. Um, and that kind of started me on <laughs> on my path. And Throughout middle school and high school, I would be like the leads in all of my musicals in school. And then when I got to college, I realized there's a lot of competition. <laughs> and um, I 
I'm a good singer, but I think I'm not like I'm Danny has one of the most amazing voices that I've heard, uh, like ever. No, really incredible. Um, so kind. I wrote a show at the annoyance that she was in and we were like, she has to be Adele and she has to be Christina Aguilera and she has to be like all, all the good singers. <laughs> it had a lot of like celebrity impressions. We were like, well, we know we have like a singer with Danny. Um, yeah. so, so I, but that was never me. I was more of like an actress who could sing. Um, and so when I got to college, it was just like oh like I'm not gonna get the leads in these things I was a really good dancer I was a very good like chorus girl because I did ballet my whole life which is kind of how I got into musicals but um then in college I was like okay I'm gonna just like audition for this improv team uh and I got on the team and then I just started doing improv from there and I went to undergrad in Chicago so like I did the annoyance college night the playground college night so I was already like in the scene even before I graduated and just kept doing more and more stuff from there. But I think there was something very exciting to me about um, when I started doing music improv and music comedy, like getting to merge these two things that I really loved. Uh, and with Baby Ones Candy and Shamilton, both of them, we do a full length musical. It's only an hour, mm -hmm. but we do, we hit all the beats. Like we have an opening number and an I want song and a villain song and like a confrontation. And then sometimes there's like a love interest and we sing a ballad. Um, and then we usually throw in like a variety number where it's just like the townspeople <laughs> talking about something random that you always see. But I love right. being able to like recontextualize these things I grew up doing that I love doing and this structure and this format that I love into something that's comedic. Yeah. I mean, I would say as a, as a, you know, comedian, a comedic performer, like nothing scares me more, but is more rewarding than when you are improvising music, because you don't know if it's going to come together. You don't know if you're going to find that rhyme. And you're just like, I have to, I have to, because it, because the, 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 the line is ending. So I have to end this line. Yeah. I always like have to reverse engineer things like especially because uh -huh. you want them to be funny Smart. and you want to have like a joke in there or you want it to make sense with the plot and so like I always am like okay what is the punchline how can I make mm -hmm. a line a setup line that that rhymes with that I guess and it's hard and sometimes you fail and sometimes I end a line especially <laughs> in Shamilton and Shamilton we're like rapping so it's like freestyling yeah. and with that I'm like I won't rhyme but I'll say something funny and the audience will laugh because yeah. they're like, that didn't rhyme and it was funny. <laughs> <laughs> she does what she wants. You know, she's quirky. She's quirky. Oh, who's she? Out there. Yeah. I mean, I'm just picking, I mean, you're just on stage like that gif of the woman with the equations just trying to make it all happen. <laughs> you know what I mean? Literally, they can, and sometimes they can see me when I start to be like, oh, I don't know how I'm going to end this. And then I'll say something uh -huh. totally out of left field and I'll be like, ah, ah, ah. We could see her failing, and it was great. I didn't know uh, the count from Sesame Street was coming to your shows. Yeah, uh, yes, he uh, counts every uh, time I mess up. <laughs> That's so mean. Yeah. He's a hater. That guy sucks. Uh, well, Darren, why don't you tell us about your relationship with Wizard of Oz? I know you said you were casting the Miz, or sorry, the, wow. the Wiz. Wow, no, no. just inserts wrestling moments where they have, have no business. Have you guys ever heard of Lay Wizarob? Oh, 
anyway, yeah. Look, we're going to do all these. The four of us are going to write all these projects. The Les Wizards, <laughs> The Wizard of Oz. Uh, so yeah, Darren, what is your relationship with The Wizard of Oz? Yeah, so when... Okay, I already told you. So like my first musical that I did was when I was eight years old and I was in The Wiz, which was basically the Motown, for those who are not familiar, um, those who lack melanin listening to this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, like the Motown version of um, The Wizard of Oz. And it came out on Broadway in the 70s um, and then was turned into a feature film later on in the 70s, I think 1978, with Diana Ross as Dorothy and Michael Jackson, a young Michael Jackson, Michael Jackson when he was still black, as the Scarecrow. <laughs> uh-huh. Nipsey Russell's in there as, as the Nipsey Tin Man, Russell. Right? Yes, he is the Tin Man. Um, and it's, oh, and Richard Pryor is the Wiz. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's like a big reveal later on when it because it, it's like a double reveal because it's like, oh, you get to see the actual wizard like you do in The Wizard of Oz. But then it's like, and it's Richard Pryor. <laughs> but anyways, The Wiz. So, yeah, The Wiz is my first touch with the material, I guess. Um, and then when I was in high school, my stepdad gifted me a CD of Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. Wow. Yes. Okay, we're getting into it now. Really, this is coming. Listeners, start and, token. Yes. And um, <laughs> there is a theory, and it's actually been proven, there is a YouTube video of it, um, that Dark Side of the Moon Pink Floyd matches up perfectly with the 1939 film um, Wizard of Oz with Judy Garland. So if you pl- just start playing the album when you start the movie and put the movie on silent, like everything lines up um, mm-hmm. to the point, I remember one thing that... Uh, really kills me is during the song us and them on the track it's um there's a line that's like up 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 and down 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 and when they say down that's when the wicked witch bends down to examine the feet of her sister like sticking out underneath the um the house um when dorothy crushed her so like she literally goes down when they say down and also they say um like black 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 and blue and when they say black is when the wicked witch appears where it's a smoke bubble and then you see her come out in black um and there's many different things and then that the happen. blue i think it cuts back to dorothy in her blue checked dress it does yeah it does yeah. um and so it's kind of nuts but it's it's crazy if you watch it i mean get really high that's the <laughs> best way to enjoy it get really high watch the youtube video where they have them overlaid and it'll blow your mind how well it <laughs> it lines up but that was really cool and then i guess the other time now more recently in my life um i'm getting my mfa at northwestern in screenwriting and um i'm in my second year now and in our second year we actually start teaching screenwriting the foundational class just to undergraduates um and so i have like a class full of like 19 and 20 year olds and i'm teaching them structure and joel cohen of the cohen brothers uh, said it best, every movie ever made is an attempt to remake The Wizard of Oz. Wow. <laughs> really. I, I truly believe that. Yeah. It's a structurally amazing film. Just like, yeah. really, all the beats are there, all the emotional beats, everything connects at the end, to the point where like, the same actors in her real life are in this fantasy world as well. But right. um, the parallels are incredible. All the acts breaks are where they should be. The midpoint is when they go to the Emerald City and they meet the wizard and they think they're about to get what they want. And then he's like, ah, 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 commit murder. 
(laughs) I know. I know. They surely say the words murder and death and kill in this movie more than any kids movie in the history of kids movies. A family children's film. Yeah, it's it's very dark. But I think it's very interesting that it's like structurally the midpoint is where that stuff happens, right? Like in a rom-com, that's usually Mm -hmm. where like the two leads like get together, but then something happens that brings them apart again and they won't get back together until the end. Or, you know, with the Wizard of Oz, it's like, oh, they think that they're going to get what they want. And then he gives them another challenge that'll carry them through the back half of the film. And it's great. It's in the brain and the heart and the courage is all the things that Dorothy needs and the fact that she like collects them all as she's going on this journey. Like it's just structurally perfect so i really i like teaching the wizard of oz to my students and they think oh this is dumb this is like a kid's movie and i'm like no but it slaps (laughs) it slaps and everything you write should be like this (laughs) i want to i guess i want to get more into some of that stuff later in particular well i guess the thing i want to ask you is how crucial do you think it is that it's a dream instead of like a, a straight up fantasy tale do you think that affects the the quality of the screenplay I don't because I think, well, the choice to use the same actors really hammers home that it's like, these are the things that you are also dealing with in your real life. She could actually do this stuff in real life, but what what else is going on in Kansas? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We don't have any listeners in Kansas, so I'm not worried about that. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, guys, if you are, but I don't know. I think I don't think it undercuts it at all. I think sometimes I think I think about like Inception, right? Like, there's a question at the end of Inception: Was this all a dream or not? Yeah. And my answer to that is like, does it even matter? Because like Leo DiCaprio is still learning the same lesson, whether yeah. it happened in real life or not. We see so many. Par- I, I had like written down later, like we see so many parallels that like the same beat happens, where like Toto bites Miss Gulch, and then later Toto like bites the witch, and then runs away, and and it's she's working through all of this stuff, and so it doesn't matter if it's her happening in her conscious brain or if it's her subconsciously working, like she's working through it. Yeah. And I think that's also important for children, like for a children's film, Mm -hmm. but also just like Dorothy being a child, even though Judy Garland had tits at this time and they had to find her breast in order for her to convincingly play like a 12 year old. But um, children need symbols. Like I feel like it's hard for them to conceptualize things in real life. So that's that's why we tell fairy tales like you were talking about earlier, um, your German fairy tales. And stuff. Oh, like, yeah. This is, yeah, yeah. This is why we tell fairy tales to children because like they can't understand that. this in yeah. real terms. And Dorothy needs that. I I think it's like Pan's Labyrinth as well. Um, oh, that yeah. Guillermo mm-hmm. del Toro movie yeah. where the girl is like in the middle of the Spanish Civil War or something. And you know, her mom dies and her stepdad's a really evil man. And she has all the challenges she goes through are like reflected in her real life, but she needs to go to a fantasy world in order to like work through these things and conceptualize them. That's what I was going to say was like, I think the dream is like the vehicle to get where we need to get. But I think movies do it in a lot of different ways. Like some movies use like the coma you know, like, yeah. oh, they're in a coma right. and can they hear what's happening? There's always sort of like a vehicle to get us beyond reality to justify that. And then, yes, we have all the symbolism and then we come back to reality. And what have we brought with us from the magical realm? And yeah, what's important is what we're taking away from it, not necessarily how we were able to break right. out of the confines of realism. 
Mm-hmm. That's sort of part because you know the book does not have this thing where it's a dream. The book is just a straight up fantasy. But apparently, the screenwriters thought that it would just be too much for these 1939 audiences for it to just be a straight up fantasy. But I don't know, uh, Danny. You want to tell us a little bit about? I know you have a particular uh, relationship to one of the roles in this movie. Yes. Yeah, so when I was in college, um, I also worked at a children's theater and I have a huge passion for children's theater and using theater in education. And uh, I <laughs> was auditioning and I feel like I, I had put myself in this box of type and was like, well, I feel like I'm probably going to get cast as the Wicked Witch. And my roommate and I both like did children's theater. And we were like, but wouldn't it be funny? Because my roommate is like the sweetest, like bubblegum, pink, mm, like magic sparkles and so I was like obviously if you look at us you're like Danny's the Wicked Witch Katie's Glenda but I was like wouldn't it be funny if we like did the opposite like that'd be more fun right so I went into this audition and I talked to my boss at the children's theater and I was like I have an idea for Glenda can I like go for it and she was like yeah whatever we're just gonna do some cold reads like do whatever and she ended up loving it and we did it and I played Glinda curveball no one ever saw it coming because I had this idea Like, what if Glinda is not just, like, this magical entity who has it all together all the time? What if she is quite upset that no one is doing it exactly the way that they need to do it? What if she's a little more type A, a little more more control freak, and she's maybe a little bit like, can you stay on the yellow brick road? Like, is it hard? (laughs) And so we sort of did Glinda that way, where she, and then she would, oh! compose herself and say I'm so sorry munchkins now what was I saying you know like she got a little short with Dorothy and was a little bit like again if all I do in life is make roles that stereotypically have been very two-dimensional for females into like three-dimensional people with interesting inner lives I'll be happy so that just got me thinking about all of the characters in the show and the time period in which it came out and how how are they real people and how are they caricatures and symbols and how do you achieve that without flattening them into this two-dimensional just i'm just a good witch and you're a good witch or a bad witch which one instead you know glinda has a temper and that's okay she's still the good witch she's a good boss Mm -hmm. but she just gets a little cranky (laughs) sometimes so that's sort of how i really i had seen the wizard of oz but that was my first time really getting to like get a little creative with it and really think about kind of the theory of the world. And I, I'm so glad I got to do that. It was so much fun. I love this, that they, we just touched on this through line clearly to your whole career of like, let's take these two dimensional women characters and make them people. Anybody let's listening? make them people. Let's make women people. <laughs> I'm available. There's a lot of money in this making women people shit. Yeah, call me, <laughs> please. Well, Let's get into it, you guys. Let's talk about this movie. I'm I'm gonna give us a little bit of uh, background on just sort of how it comes to be. There's like I swear to God, 25 writers worked on this thing, including Herman Mankiewicz, who wrote uh, Citizen Kane. Uh, Ogden Nash, the poet, wrote a draft of the screenplay. They were had all these different people writing it. No one knew that the other people were writing it. I, let me just say this up top. The production of this movie sounds like a fucking nightmare. (laughs) Like, there is so much overlap going on with the writing. There's, like, five directors over the course of production. And then it ends up sort of my my great-uncle, Victor Fleming... Uh, gets the credit for for the lion's share of the directing. You can't shake your head on a podcast. Oh, I thought the listener would hear that. But so they, in terms of casting, uh, 
Ed Wynn and W.C. Fields both turned down the role of the wizard. Do you guys know Ed Wynn? He's the, he's the Mad Hatter from Alice in Wonderland. And he turned down the wizard, which would have been really fun. Ray Bolger is cast as the, I'm sure you guys know this. Ray Bolger is cast as the Tin Man. And Buddy Ebsen, who's Jed from the Beverly Hillbillies, is cast as the Scarecrow. But Bolger, the balls on this guy, he goes to the director, whichever director it was at that point, and he lobbies for them to be switched. And Buddy Ebsen's like, yeah, whatever, I don't care. Can you imagine... Like, I mean, Danny, I guess you basically just did that with the with the witches when you played in The Wizard of Oz. And you're like, hey, don't cast us this, cast us the other way. But Buddy Epson and Ray Bolger switch roles. Uh, and Bolger becomes the Scarecrow and Buddy Epson becomes the Tin Man. And wouldn't you know it, 10 days into shooting, Buddy Epson starts to suffer a severe allergic reaction to the aluminum powder makeup that they put him in for the Tin Man. He is hospitalized in, in critical condition. And he has to quit the movie, and that's how they get Jack Haley to play the Tin Man. Also, he only re-records If I Only Had a Heart, so Buddy Epson's vocals are, like, in all the group numbers still. Oh, interesting. Judy Garland has just a nightmare of a time on this shoot. She's plied with pills to keep her weight down. She's harassed from literally everyone, from drunk munchkin actors to Louis B. Mayer, the studio head. There's a famous story about the director, Victor Fleming. He... She, she gets the giggles because she's on so many uppers, I'm sure, uh, at that point. So she gets the giggles during the scene where she's talking to the Cowardly Lion and Victor Fleming slaps her. He straight up takes her aside and slaps her. And then he feels so bad about it. <laughs> I, I know this isn't funny, but this part just makes me laugh. He, when he feels so bad about it after they get the shot that he asked the crew to punch him in the face. <laughs> and Like in a line? Did they line up and be like, boom? <laughs> that's, boom that's what I wonder. Boom. Was it, was it everybody? <laughs> was it like, because you got to imagine a bunch of the crew was like, yeah, okay. He's like, yeah, instead of like tre- treating right? Judy or treating women better, uh, you just hit me. That'll, you know. <laughs> Yeah, solve the issue. I'm not gonna change, but right, but like you know, uh, an eye for an eye. Margaret Hamilton is cast as the Wicked Witch. They, she is also in this toxic copper-based makeup, which forces her to be on a liquid diet on shoot days. And then at one point, when she's exiting Munchkin Land, the pyro goes off too soon, and all this copper makeup on her hands and face catches <gasps> fire, and she is out of the shoot for three months with third-degree burns. This shoot is a nightmare. Jesus. Um, <laughs> But but yeah, it's uh, so much goes wrong. I mean, it's I, I should mention it's based on L. Frank Baum's 1900 novel. That is a year, 1900, that this book came out. Uh, and then Harold R. Lynn, who's like a classic kind of Tin Pan Alley composer, he he composes the song with lyrics by a gentleman named Yip Harburg. Yip. <laughs> yep. Like Appa, yep. Yip Yip. Appa, Yip Yip. So that's pretty much uh, the size of the pre-production on this movie. Sounds super fun. Oh, I heard I heard that the reason that the shoes were ruby in the film, because this goes back to uh, what Steph was saying earlier about the film being like anti, or the books being like anti-gold standard, because in the books, her slippers are silver. And they're also silver in The Wiz, too, in, in other iterations. But uh, for the movie, they were like, oh, we think the ruby will look better using this technicolor technology you know it's funny because then this thing is gonna i mean it, it kind of comes out to not much acclaim and and doesn't really do well and it's not until like 1959 that they start broadcasting it on tv that it becomes a hit but that, even that i wonder like how did that happen because most people don't own color tvs at that point so like they don't even see how wild it is when she comes into oz wait so was it you're saying it was a sleeper hit like it wasn't even a huge like box office smash in its time right yeah it was not wow judy garland like got depressed after this movie came out because she put so much into it and like nothing 
it, it like didn't really pan out in terms of it being a big hit. Dang. She was like, you mean they drugged me and abused me for nothing? <laughs> Why would she be upset? So you can call The Wizard of Oz then like a cult classic. Truly, like like 20 years Kinda, later. Yeah. It's like the Rocky Horror Picture Show of the 30s. Right, right. It's like some hipster in the 40s was like, wait, guys. You gotta see I this. found this movie that my mom liked. It's so cool. No one's <laughs> ever heard of it. It syncs up perfectly to Frank Sinatra records. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah the Pink Floyd thing probably also helped it too. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. In the 60s. But also like in general, I feel like in the 60s there was like Alice in Wonderland and like Oz and people were like into trippy. There's like yeah. a trippiness. Things yeah. get a little yeah, psychedelic. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh well, let's go through the plot. Let's talk about this thing. All right. So it's 1939, so you know we're gonna get an overture and opening credits moment. Of course. Um there's a very sweet little dedication about how much people love this book. Which I just had never noticed before and was like an interesting, it's interesting to think of, of like them having to put this into context for, for the past, mm-hmm. like from the past versus like not knowing like the relationship that we are all going to have to this movie. It's kind now. of a desperate move, really? right? Like they're like, hey, d- hey, there's yeah. that book that you love. Just, just trust us. Right. Remember how great we yeah. are? <laughs> it's going to be great. Um, but then we're in Kansas. Uh, on a soundstage, uh, specifically on a soundstage looking like Kansas, teenage Dorothy Gale, Judy, as as we have discussed, Judy Garland is 16 during filming, uh, is fleeing back to the farm where she lives with Uncle Henry, Aunt M, and three stoogy farmhands, Zeke, Hunk, and Hickory. Her dog, Toto, has been biting the local tyrant, Elmire Gulch, and she causes a bunch of trouble, Dorothy, causes... Wait, is it Tyrant? That, I was wondering that I, too. Well, I, yeah, okay, I'll just say Tyrant. <laughs> but I was trying to, like, how would you say Tyrant with, like, is she's a female Tyrant? Uh, I think you say Tyrant. Oh. It's like actor. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if it's progressive to come up with a female word for Tyrant. Tyrantess. 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 It's like one of a waitress, actress. Waitress. Yeah. Tyrantess. Okay. Uh, Dorothy's dog Toto has been biting the local tyrantess Elmira Gulch and she causes Dorothy causes a bunch of trouble at the farm worrying about it she sings out her angst in Somewhere Over the Rainbow fuck this girl's a star it actually says that in the the script they wrote that in <laughs> it says about Judy Garland fuck she's a star fuck she's a star she's a star we see the the boys that are going to become the the scarecrow, Tin Man, and Lion. Um, we meet Toto. Toto has some amazingly adorable moments in this opening. Well, he's very pilled up. I mean, probably they got a corset on him underneath the fur, you know, to keep him skinny. <laughs> it's it's uh-huh. horrible so for many dogs back then. Yeah, no. Yeah. Truthfully, he, he's probably getting treated better than Judy Garland. Honestly, at yeah. least nobody hits him. <laughs> That's yeah. true. Well, that, I bet it's not though. I mean, Aww. I mean, Milo Notice was the '90s, so so or Homeward <laughs> Bound or whichever one it is that all the dogs we lost. Well, we lost a lot of good men out there, but <laughs> it's apparently just one dog the whole time. Nate was funny. The, also, that dog's name is Toto. That's what the credits say, but uh, apparently his real name was Terry. Oh, well, that's disappointing. <laughs> Did you know people actually can buy dogs that are like descendants of that? dog wow that's incredible i think there's like a cottage industry for that where it's like 
people have like <laughs> they have their whole like genealogy of the dog and it's like see like this was toto and then he mated with this he sired this dog and this wow. dog and this dog it's, it's like wow. horse racing yeah 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 this is a bit of a sidebar but i did direct the wizard of oz one time with high schoolers and there was a girl in the cast who insisted that we cast her chihuahua as toto and that <laughs> chihuahua did not want to be there and it bit me several times i'm a dog oh, lover so i was like it's okay buddy but every time i had to pull this chihuahua out of its cage backstage she was like oh he's fine in there just pull him out when he needs to go on stage and then he would never listen so he's just running around the stage and she's chasing him and the audience loved it because they were like oh it's cute but it was like this stinky crusty grumpy chihuahua <laughs> i was like we should have tied a stuffed animal to a rope and you could have just made it work girl <laughs> But that's that what you guys did part. stuff when when you were stage manager? No, we had a dog. Really? Um, yeah, we we also we had dog auditions. My, <laughs> I don't know if I've ever. I know that I've talked about. I don't know if I've talked about on the podcast that my neighbors had like nine wiener dogs at the time. Like my neighbors when I was in high school had nine wiener dogs, and we tried to get one of the wiener dogs to be Toto, but, but contract negotiations fell through. Yeah, she refused. Too much there was kibble. something about walking across a line. That just, she refused. She couldn't do it. It was Union. Didn't want to cross the picket line. <laughs> I can't, I'm trying to remember who the final dog was. It was like someone's dog. Oh. Like someone in the cast had like an aunt who had a really well-behaved little dog. Right. Yeah, well-behaved should be the most important qualification. <laughs> but so somewhere over the rainbow, this song, uh, I mean, I, this song's the closest thing to a bot. I mean... Right, I mean this. This is the the song. This is one of the only things, the only songs from this musical that I think really holds up. I mean, I guess I want to fight about the Munchkinland sequence when we get there, but <laughs> okay. uh, but yeah, I mean, this is. I'm I'm having a hard time thinking about like what do you even say about this? Like, I guess maybe Andy or the, here's a question for Darren and Danny. I have ever had auditions where, like, this was just, like, the song that you had to sing. Because, like, they know you're going to know it. It has, like, it starts with that octave jump. And so, like, <laughs> yeah. you can just kind of tell right away if they're going to be good. Yeah. That feels to me like the only way I can describe how ubiquitous the song is. It is. It's deceivingly difficult to sing well, um, I think, <laughs> in my opinion. Uh, maybe some people are like, Pfft. That's fine. Good on you. But I just, in my experience doing the show with like a high school Dorothy, who was a great actress and a strong vocalist, but I remember her saying like, I've sung this song a million times, but now that I have to sing it in front of people, I'm realizing I really have to choose when I breathe, where I breathe. I have to warm up my somewhere and lighten up. I don't want to belt it because that feels too heavy. Like when dynamics, it's it's it really is a song that requires a lot of range. And in my opinion, to do it well and to not make it boring because everyone's heard this song a million times, you have to kind of craft like the journey with it so the audience can go mm -hmm. with you on it and it feels fresh and new because, yeah, it's... It, Everyone's sung it a million times, so you gotta mm -hmm. find the through line that takes the audience with you all the way through the song and you end in a different place than you began, or else it's just, here's my best Judy Garland impression, you know? <laughs> I, I remember when Catherine McPhee sang this song on American Idol, 
she did an iteration of somewhere over the rainbow and this was like in the finale it was like her versus taylor hicks her season this is when soul i patrol. still was wow. I love this. A soul patrol when i was still avidly watching american idol but i remember like it was all over the news the next day it was a big deal because she did like somewhere over the rainbow like <laughs> like a crazy like riff at the end and um it was a huge deal uh but i remember people being like she crushed it and she made it new like what Danny was saying and took you on an emotional journey and added all these riffs and stuff I remember like doing auditions it was either somewhere over the rainbow or the star spangled banner mm-hmm. were like the two songs because with the star spangled banner that song also go- goes all over the place yeah. um, starts lower than you think yeah mm-hmm and you have to really think about where do I want to start the song so that I'm not going way too high same with somewhere over the rainbow like where do I want to start this song because I know it's gonna like take me mm-hmm. all the way like the the bridge and I think it's really beautiful structurally too how with the song it's like uh she's talking about you know someday I'll da, 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 mm-hmm. da, 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 da. like I'll wake up in the clouds and that's when she goes really up in the clouds there yeah she yeah. is like vocally I think the what's happening vocally matches the lyrics as well which is really beautiful I gotta mention like you would think that no one could be more associated with the song or could associate themselves with the song as much as Judy Garland, but I got to shout out the version by Israel Kawamao Kioli. Yes, I was about to bring that up. I think that Israel captured part of the magical, mystical vibe of the song. And if you notice, if you listen, he repeats lyrics and doesn't necessarily say them in the original order. It doesn't matter because you're there with him from the moment he... And you're immediately just like... Take me away. I'm there. I'm right there with you. I want to go across the rainbow. Like he captured that sort of mystical, magical, light, fantasy airiness of it. And that was all all he needed to do. A gift. But even he changes the orchestration of it to where he's not doing that octave jump and everything. Like he it's it's he changed it so that it's not as hard of a song to sing, but it's it's still very pretty. Oh, also Judy Garland, queer icon. Oh, oh yeah. The fact that she's saying somewhere over the rainbow and then oh, wow. for many, many decades, like gay men would be referred to as like friends of Judy. Friend of or, Dorothy. Like, or, mm-hmm. friend or friend of Dorothy. Of Dorothy yeah. Or just as a Judy. Like as <laughs> yeah. a Judy. Yeah. And and I think it's very interesting that she has always like really championed gay rights and then really came on the scene with a song about being over the rainbow and like the symbolism of that. Yeah. And I tried to like research that and like research like really what the connection is, but there's not, it's just like, it's just something that like a lot of gay men like of a certain era, like really liked Judy Garland's performance in this movie. I remember that was, it was a big thing in uh, Judy, the Renee Zellweger movie where she plays Judy Garland, like towards the end of her life and career, but she sings somewhere over the rainbow and she's like, friends with a lot of gay guys and they're like this song like your performance changed my life and like it's our anthem so oh, I think that's really beautiful it's so yeah. funny how Liza Minnelli like inherited that <laughs> well yeah and I think that has a lot to do with like we've talked about the melody a lot but you kind of talk about like iconic I want songs and I think it's it's not just the fact that it has rainbow in the title I think it's it's very much the message of the song, that dreaming, that longing for a better world, a better place. I think that really resonates, especially with the gay community at that time period. But even now, I, I don't know if I could think of a single person who can't relate to wanting 
things to be easier, things to be simpler, things to be better. And I think Judy being so young, it's kind of tragic and heartbreaking because I think probably she didn't have to do very much work to get herself in that place to sing that song like as a woman at that time, especially with everything she was going through. Oh, she's a warrior. Like, thank God the only other male in that frame with her is Toto. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Toto, an ally. <laughs> an ally, truly. Yes. And again, speaking structurally, the I Want song happening, like, right before the inciting incident of the cyclone is, like, slaps. The yeah. structure of this movie slaps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's there's not a lot of fat. There's not a lot of, like, diddle dawdling around. It's, like, the chain of events just keeps... Boom, boom, boom. Let's get into it. Hell yeah. Okay, so uh, Miss Gulch has followed Dorothy to the farm with a sheriff's order. I can't do her voice, but it's so just, it's, I love her voice. It's so like, it's all in her, in her nose. Um, And she is authorized to seize the dog to have it destroyed. Is that literally like, does she have a piece of paper that says like this dog going to be destroyed? Just give it to your neighbor. <laughs> it's fine. We promise. It's fine. Um, but Toto escapes and returns to Dorothy, who runs away because she's a teenager and that's the only solution they know. Uh, she meets Professor Marvel, a clearly scammy fortune teller camping out in his little wagon because it's the 30s. And he convinces her to go back home through psychic trickery. <laughs> yeah, he truly, she- <laughs> he truly John Edwards her ass. He's he's like, oh, yeah, that's, she's like, that's my Aunt Em. And he's like, her name is Emily. And it's like, oh, you just guessed that. Dorothy returns to the farm just as a twister approaches. She can't get into the locked storm shelter, so she hides in her bedroom and gets knocked out by a shattered window. The tornado lifts the house, and Dorothy watches all of her buddies and nightmares pass by the window before the house drops down in a suddenly technicolor place. We must be over the rainbow, she yells. We're in Munchkinland. Welcome to Munchkinland, everyone. Such a natural thing to think. Oh, we must be over the rainbow. I would, I would think like, am I dead? (laughs) Literally, yeah. I would be like, oh my god. I so okay. I'm trying to think of like for an audience in the 30s who like is used to seeing a lot of things in black and white, but also like knows that they themselves are not in black and white. Like they can look around and see color. But is is in the context of the story, like, her saying we must be over the rainbow to me implies that, like, their real life in Kansas is in sepia tone. Yeah, and I think that's also a symbol, in my opinion. I mean, part of it is, like, technology, and I think it was definitely, like, you want to talk about marketing, like, this big ploy that, oh, now we're in technicolor technology, it's so fancy. But I think that definitely also is a symbol of, like... Now we've entered the fantastical and now you're using all your senses as opposed to before it was so bland and drab and dreary and you want to go somewhere over the rainbow. Here you are. Mm-hmm. Here are all the colors. And I love that immediately, though, it's not like, wow, welcome. It's all beautiful and amazing. It's also like immediate consequence. Yes, it's all beautiful and amazing, but your house, you, you just straight up murdered someone. You you did kill that girl, though. <laughs> yes. So that's one thing I love about this movie is, you know, I, I hate a story that's uber predictable and super, everything is rainbows and butterflies. It's like, yeah, it's amazing here, but also there are things here you don't understand. Uh-huh. And now you have a whole new responsibility that's just been put on you. Figure it out. I, I think that's, <laughs> I yeah. It. No, that's really insightful. And it reminds me of like a storytelling 
thing that they say it's it's never and then but it's but then oh yeah it gives you it's like okay something happens but then it has this consequence so then you have to do this other thing but then this happens so then you have to do something but then so i think it's it's an interesting turn yeah where it's like okay yeah she gets what she wants but then it's at the consequence of that happening so and then the wicked witch is mad but then you know yes. i love that mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you just made me think of, I know I've been talking a lot about the gold standard, never in my life past, you know, AP (laughs) history in high school that I think I would ever discuss that again. But all that glitters is not gold. That sort of idea that, oh, here's what you thought you wanted, you know, with great power comes great responsibility type of thing. All those cliches that you can use Mm -hmm. just because you want things to be different. Do you really? And it goes back to sort of at the end how she's like, well, now I appreciate the life I have because mm-hmm. everything was super crazy there. That's sort of, I was wondering, Darren, you're screenwriting MFA. I sort of feel like she should get to bring the color back with her to Kansas at the end. That actually, I have that exact thought too, like with thinking about this film. I'm like, oh, you know, wouldn't it, I mean, we'll get into this when we get into modern retellings, but I'm like, wouldn't it be cool if like at the end, she comes back to Kansas. Yeah, maybe it's sepia. But then you see, like, as she's waking up, she spots something in the corner and it has a little bit of color to it. Ooh. Showing that, like, ooh, she's starting to see her home life as being just as magical as Oz. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's grown up. She's learned. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah, some sort of, like, growth. Mm-hmm. Well, we've, we've pretty much said it, but... Dorothy is greeted by a good witch named Glinda and the townspeople who explain that she's in Munchkin land in the land of Oz and her house has killed the Wicked Witch of the East. Um, And then we're in what is, I guess, officially known as the Munchkin land sequence. I didn't know that it had this like summation name, but it really is like 10 distinct little songs that just kind of carry us through meeting all the munchkins and then Dorothy explaining what happened and then ding dong the witch is dead and then I'm the mayor and then there's the coroner and then more witch is dead. I really love the munchkin sequence you guys. I would love I want to mention that the sort of main troop of munchkins is a group that's credited as the singer midgets which is obviously not a word we use anymore but they were named for they're not named for being singers they were named because their manager's name was Leo Singer. And that is just a coincidence. But a fun fact about this is that they came from Europe and many of them were Jewish and used the opportunity to come to America to escape the Nazis. Love that. Yeah. yeah. 1939, baby. That's yeah. Right. It's all happening. Wow. wow. Not like now where people aren't running from Nazis. <laughs> you gotta leave here to leave the Nazis now. <laughs> You're gonna need a really good excuse. Oh, you booked it with Judy? Go. <laughs> Have fun. No, the Munchkin Land sequence is so iconic that before I knew what the Wizard of Oz was, my mom, as a little kid, had me singing, We represent the lollipop kill, the lollipop kill. And I didn't know what that was until I was a little older and was like, Oh, all these Munchkins. But my mom, from her childhood, that sequence was like, the most iconic to her and my director brain is like wow that sequence to film that what a setup what a tedious everything it's huge it's a huge shoot and such a wide shot of so much going on 
just insanity. It's it's very impressive. Even just corralling all those actors would be a feat. Oh. But then there's all this scenery. Yeah. There's there's these like crane shots and everything. I will say there's a lot of painted backdrops in this movie. There are some times in the movie where I fully thought that Judy Garland was about to Wiley Coyote right into a painted backdrop. <laughs> like she just <laughs> she just walks right into one. Leaving uh, Munchkinland yeah. is a really good example of that. Yeah, it's a, the the prime example. Is Ding Dong the Witch's Dead one of the worst things to happen to misogyny? <laughs> Yeah. In terms of like tools that they've been yeah. given. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's something that, that Wicked really explores is, yeah, it's kind of like it in our story, the angle that we're looking at it from, ding dong, the witch is dead. Good job, Dorothy. And she's like, mm, okay, like, I guess I did it. <laughs> but then, you know, that witch had a family. <laughs> that witch had feelings. She was a woman too. Like that perspective is one of the things that I first appreciated about Wicked. Because as a kid, that was like the first thing I thought was like, dang, we're just gonna you did kill her sister skim though. right over that. Yeah, she's dead. She's straight up. She just dead. wants the shoes back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really yeah. like she's not like, asking nicely. I like I will credit like I understand that, but she's not asking for much. No, it's not. I will say it's not murder. It's more witch slaughter. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, fair enough. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 incredible this whole sequence, and and also the sheer amount of little people actors that they were able to find. I I can't tell if some of them. I are think some of them are children. In. I mean, I'd seen The Wizard of Oz before. I saw The Wiz, but I did appreciate that with The Wiz, they were like, "No, these are kids. These are <laughs> yeah. actual." children and they're playing on a, a playground and that is what munchin land is it's a new york city playground and i just feel like it's more pc i guess to be like <laughs> munchkin land it's like yes munchkins because they're children and not and because they're, they're like little people right. well but also i mean as you say that i'm realizing like did the word munchkin exist or is that a word that we have from the wizard of oz Oh, I don't actually know. Okay. Because like, I feel like maybe that word and its association as a sort of derogatory term, maybe comes from here. When did Dunkin Donuts trademark that? That's the answers we need. (laughs) I do. I do think that that word originates here. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so says Wikipedia. Look, it's a cute-ass word. It is. Yeah, it is. You know, I'd love to call a little kid a munchkin. Well, and at the time, I just think people were a lot less concerned with what was PC and what was not obviously. Oh, absolutely. They they use the word uh, hot and tot in this uh, <laughs> musical, which is uh, a racial slur at the time. I guess that's a nicer word than like dwarf or imp. I think right. about like Tyrion Lannister in Game of Thrones. He's like, yes, I'm a dwarf. I'm an mm. imp or whatever. Yeah. And I'm like, right. well, munchkins at least a cute sounding word. And that does bring up to me something else really interesting about this munchkin land sequence is there are these like factions amongst the munchkins and you have mm-hmm. almost this sort mm-hmm. of like epcot feeling of like going around the world <laughs> and like different you're, cultures you're doing different... the little tour yeah there is something sort of interesting about that and they definitely pulled like influences for these different groups of munchkins of like cultural factions the tribes within the the munchkins that is kind of an interesting thing that i've never thought that much about until this moment and i'm like that's kind of weird I would call them less of tribes and more of unions. Yes. Um, because that. it is a lollipop guild. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, we know that they, they know something about collective bargaining. And I love that. <laughs> Shout out to Illinois, who just made that part of our uh, state constitution. Yes, Absolutely. thank God. 
and so I guess I would like to like, I mean, there's a lot of stories that explore things in Wizard of Oz. I would love to see a story more about the Munchkin Land sort of division. But what a no little person actor, Peter Dinklage isn't going to play like a Munchkin in a gritty remake of, of Munchkin Land. And like, I don't want to see Gary Oldman, you know, with shoes on his knees either, you know, yeah. so I don't think it's ever going to happen. But that could be really, I mean... You have my gears turning now, Andy, Mm because I'm thinking about, well, maybe this will be for later in in the pod when we pitch ideas. Is that what we're doing? Yeah, yeah, we're going to pitch ideas. We'll we'll work on this set. Or or if it's a really good idea, we'll cut it from the podcast and we'll just work on it. produce that. I'm sticking, I'm going to stick a pin in this because you have me thinking about something. I love this. Okay. So um, the, we talked about the witcher, the wicked witch of the West who appears she tries to seize the slipper. She can't. Glinda tricks her. The witch has no power in Munchkin land, conveniently. Like, there's not a reason for it. They're just like, oh, yeah, it would be better for our plot if you didn't. And we're just not concerned with justifying it. That's just the way it is. So right. I, I love that, frankly. Don't waste <laughs> time on it. And then, oh, and then we get, I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. I mean, this movie has, like, three different quotes in the AFI top movie quotes (laughs) list. So Glinda tells Dorothy that the Wizard of Oz in the Emerald City might be able to help her get home. Dorothy heads off and follows the Yellow Brick Road. Along the way, she meets Scarecrow, who wants a brain, Tin Man, who wants a heart, Cowardly Lion, who wants Denoive, uh, (laughs) Courage... More specifically. And they are, as we've talked about, played by the farmhands. The foursome and Toto eventually reach the Emerald City, despite the best efforts of the Wicked Witch, which include fireballs, flying monkeys, opioid fields. Yeah. Yeah, the poppy fields. That's something that went right over my head as a child. That in me watching it, I'm like, wait a second. Yeah. The witch is on to something here. The witch is Big Pharma? Question mark? <laughs> <laughs> so now we've met our buddies. I have just one question before we move on, which is, does Glinda know that the wizard is like a charlatan? Like, say, let's let's take wicked lore. This is interesting. This is a spoiler that I think I've been keeping from you about Wicked. All right, because I haven't seen Wicked, so if we just need to move on. It's we in Chicago on. right now, Andy. I know. We're <laughs> we're in the lottery. We're putting our names in the lottery. <laughs> sort of sort of the whole we were just talking to Deanna, our last week's guest, about this uh at the Laugh Factory last weekend about how like sort of the whole impetus for this podcast is that these movies make musicals accessible to people in a way that music that musical theater is not always accessible to broke people <laughs> uh and so that's why i like to talk about the movies more than i like to talk about the plays but i'm very excited for the movie because john chu directed the ever living shit out of uh in the heights and i think that he really knows how to take something from stage to screen and so I'm excited to see that happen, but I have not yet seen the play. Do you not want to reveal? I know that there's another another movie that came out, um, Disney. The Great and Powerful Oz. Yeah, Hell Oz yeah. the Great and Powerful, which is about, uh, it's with James Franco plays the wizard. And he has, mm-hmm. I, he, I think he has a relationship with the witch who becomes, she turns green halfway through, who's played by Mila Kunis. Um, mm-hmm. And then he also... He's with her, but then he breaks up with her and then is with Glinda afterwards. So totally different uh, canon from the canon established in Wicked. But this is also like, I think all this stuff by now is in the public domain. So people can do whatever they want with L. Frank Baum's material. Um, But in that one, it's like, I think a few people know that he's not real, but he's a very good scientist. 
and for them that's like equivalent to magic he is kind of like christopher columbus without the smallpox right like he he was trying to go (laughs) one place he got lost he ended up in this other place and he just uh made himself the lord of all these people Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right because i think you see the obvious i think you see this more in the like there's a play adaptation of the wizard of oz that's very like literally adapted from the book and the musical sort of has more of these sort of allusions to the book but i know there was a play version where it's very clear that in the beginning when dorothy is sitting down with um oh you know the creepy guy who's by himself and he's like oh yeah fortune telling i'm magic you need to go back home (laughs) it's very clear that her dream version of this charlatan is the wizard and they're the same person so kind of this idea to me that that's a representation of someone who wants fame and acclaim and power and feels like they need to be something they're not when there's more value in what they have to offer just as a person if they were just brave enough to be themselves. Ooh. God, that sounded like a Hallmark card. But you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so is this where Love they get it. to the Emerald City once we've collected our friends? So we're at the Emerald City. They have some trouble with the doorman, who <laughs> is Professor Marvel with a British accent. Spoiler alert, he's also going to be the wizard. Um, and we get a makeover montage, Merry Old Land of Oz. Um, we get the aerial threat from the witch. <laughs> it really is a, Dorothy. It really is a makeover montage. I never it really is a makeover montage. And that's like <laughs> also structurally amazing. I mean, like a mid, usually in the midpoint, there's a shift. Did you know the midpoint of The Little Mermaid is when she gets her legs? You For would real. think that it's earlier in the film, but when you watch it, it's like, yeah. no, the, the midpoint oh, wow. is when she gets yeah. her legs. Interesting. So Interesting. Like, I don't know. I think it's sometimes you see like a physical transformation. I'm really into Darren gets an, gets a script writing. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have this program running in like autopilot now whenever I watch a movie where I'm like, ooh, I think this is the midpoint. And I'll pause <laughs> it. I'm like, yep. It's like a, it's like a superpower. Yeah. But yeah, there's usually like some kind of physical transform. Sometimes there's a physical transformation that happens at the midpoint and kind of see that with Dorothy as well. I'm able to do that with Goodfellas, but that's only because I used to have to turn the DVD over to get to side two. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> it's worth mentioning to me that the horses that are, because it's a horse of a different color. So every time we see the horse, it's a different color. They are colored using jello crystals and they had to shoot the scenes quickly because the horses would just start licking it off. That's like feeding chicken to the chicken. Here's what's wild to me, though, (laughs) is that the body paint that they're putting on the horses is at least, like, not going to kill them, like the body paint they're putting on the actors. (laughs) Yeah. They're like, well, let's not do anything crazy and, like, put these horses in the hospital. But the actor is like, let's put straight up arsenic just right on their skin. It's fine. (laughs) Right. Let's cover uh, Margaret Hamilton in copper and send her through fire. Yeah, she's horses... fine, but the horses get tasty jello. <laughs> Maybe they were worried that Margaret Hamilton would lick it off. Oh, that's true. Probably. It's probably what it was. <laughs> okay, so we also get if I were king of the forest. What is that? Like like I I do appreciate so one thing that it is is the last like actual song in the movie. That's really true, isn't it? We have like one little the the guards do their OEO march later, but like that's it. 
Um, and so, like, from that perspective, I like it. I also, like, I like it, generally. I love everything that Bert Lahr is doing here. They set it up so that they can pull all of these things from the, the set What that are, like, you know, they smash a pot and that's his crown. It's it's really fun. I just don't understand what it, what it is and why it is. I always wondered if it was an actor choice or a directing choice to have the mm. really interesting, if I... We're mm-hmm. king of the forest, like that that <laughs> vibrato, like sort of like glottal thing. It's so iconic now, and I'm so glad <laughs> it happened. But I just wonder if the first time he did that, if everyone on set was like, "Hey, Bert, can I talk to you for a second? Uh, yeah, <laughs> what? And he was choice. like, "Trust Victor me, punches him in the trust face. me on this." <laughs> yeah, it's so iconic, and I'm so glad that it happened that way, though, because I mean, that's the automatic first thing I think of when I think of Cowardly Lion, Wizard of mm-hmm. Oz. Is that's the first thing that pops into my head is the way he sings, "If I Were King." Um, I-, I do feel bad for the Cowardly Lion in a lot of ways, too, maybe just because I relate. I feel kind of bad. There's definitely a line in the movie where Dorothy is like, Oh, perhaps I'll miss you most of all, Scarecrow. And I'm like, dang, what about the lion? And Tin Man's cool, too. Like, Tin Man's cool, too. But, like, we just went through this whole big thing with the lion, and then she, like, kind of clearly has a favorite? I'm like, what's going on? I actually have um, some notes on that, but I'm going to save it for when we get there later, because that is, I'm very intrigued by that, because, like, hey, those two dudes are standing right there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's interesting you say that, too, because in The Wiz, Dorothy sings a song, like a ballad, to the lion, specifically when he gets scared. And I'm like, why does she not have any of these private moments with the other two? I'm very yeah. <laughs> why the Absolutely. lion? Absolutely. <laughs> like in her dream world, is it her like relationship with the different farmhands? And there's one like that maybe she has a crush on. But then that always gets weird because like she's a child and it, ugh, it's just a whole weird thing, man. It's it's. I think it's very intentionally yeah. vague. So this song in particular, this If I Were King of the Forest, I don't understand why it's here. It's like... They're getting ready to meet the wizard and then the song happens and it's all about how he would, you know, be a strong king of the forest. And then literally they get told the wizard says go away and they all just start crying. So like, I don't understand. Like, it's like a little bit of a weird uh, uh, AB to happen to me. I get whiplash from it. Yeah, Yeah. I remember feeling weird as a kid. Like we talked earlier about like wanting her to bring some color back into the world, like wanting there to be a tangible like proof of growth. And so then when they get, like, their brain, their heart, their courage, I'm kind of like, as a kid, was I this cynical as a child? What does that tell you about me as a person? But I was kind of like, did they earn it, though? Like, he was still, like, what did he really do? That was that brave. Like, no, does he just get bravery now? Like, that's not how that works. Maybe that says a lot about my parents, but I remember thinking that as a kid. But so then, so they start crying when they get told to go away. And yeah, they just like wind their way in. Yeah, it just and works. The, and the doorman's like, "Oh, don't cry. Uh, okay, you can come in." Because of course, it's the wizard anyway. So it is. I mean, I guess let's not, is the doorman. Is it just supposed to be the wizard? I think so. I don't think he is. I think that's really? too much makeup for him to take it off all at once. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't. Th- I mean, I think like for him to do like think about it. He's the doorman. He's like, okay. One second. <laughs> Goes behind this thing. Like Mrs. Doubtfire puts a pie on his face. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of one of those things where it's like, so we're, the witch 
we're not going to take the time to, like, justify that she can't have powers in Munchkin Land or that Glinda's just going to show up whenever with magical intuition to just know when you guys need help or that, you know, the lion is going to inexplicably have his moment. Now, we won't justify that, but, like, we need to make sure that the wizard is, like, these three side characters. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. I'd Like, pick, pick one. Pick, pick one. Pick Stick one. Stick with it. Sometimes simplicity <laughs> is better. Maybe everyone's clones. Everyone is clones. Oh, that'd be smart. That's why how he maintains control so well because it's just copies of themselves. He's like edited. He's a scientist. He could probably he probably figured out CRISPR. Yeah. He is literally Palpatine. He's Palpatine. <laughs> Jenga. You want to talk about yeah. like modernizing yeah. this tale? There is definitely a Wizard of Oz remake. I'm not the first person who thought of this. I'm positive where like Emerald City is like advanced technology, AI, VR android mm. land and it's less about a dream and more about like vr mm-hmm. someone's already writing that i just know it God, you did just make me realize that you made me remember that there was a remake of wizard of oz as a sci-fi miniseries like the sci-fi channel that was called tin man does anyone remember this oh yeah i do remember yeah uh, it was like one of those things where it's like everyone is sort of mapped onto a different character. And it's like, this was already an allegory. You're ma- now you're making an allegory out of this yeah. allegory. <laughs> now I got to do jumping jacks to figure out what everything represents. Yeah. Okay. So they cry their way into the wizard <laughs> yeah. chamber. The chambers are some great, like, imperial art deco shit. And I just wanted to highlight that because remember, we're in the 30s. Uh, the wizard appears as a giant ghostly head like Zordon and tells them <laughs> that he will grant their wishes if they bring him the broomstick of the Wicked Witch of the West. Oh no. During their quest to the haunted woods, Dorothy and Toto are captured by flying monkeys and taken to the Wicked Witch's castle. The Scarecrow, Tin Man, and Cowardly Lion free Dorothy, but they're pursued by goons across the castle. They corner the witch who sets fire to the Scarecrow Dorothy throws a bucket of water onto the scarecrow, but accidentally splashes the witch, which causes her to melt away. So Dorothy has done like two times witch slaughter, has accidentally killed two witches. Accidentally killed two witches. If I was Glinda, I would be scared of her. Right? You should be. (laughs) I was just going to say they found a way to sort of like absolve her of any kind of like responsibility or malintent. Oh, I didn't I didn't realize like what if there's yeah. like a, a shot we get a close up of Dorothy like a glint in her eye where she's like I know <laughs> I know I knew exactly it was, it was, was Dorothy doing. all yeah if I was Glinda I'd be afraid of her because I'd be like oh she just killed like two of the other four witches because there's apparently like Glinda's of the south and there's another good witch of the north in, in the books in the lore um yeah. it's like she literally took out half the witches in Oz in like three That's days crazy yeah, yeah. I'd be is crazy. terrified. I would not want to meet up with her at the end. I'd be like, am I next? <laughs> Glinda asks her in the beginning, are you a good witch or are you a bad witch? And I guess she just takes Dorothy's word for it. But she's got to have a moment where she's like, hmm, kind of weird that you've been in the room twice when uh, when these witches go down. Yeah. <laughs> kind of makes me a little suspicious. Well, but she was acquitted. One thing I wanted to mention here is that they did cut out a scene that they filmed and record. I guess I don't know if they filmed it. They recorded it. Is this the jitterbug? It's the this is the jitterbug. Hell yeah! And there is there is one vestige of it, which is that when the witch sends the monkeys when they're like in the forest, and we see the witch sending the monkeys to go pick them up, she says something that's like, "I've sent a little insect ahead to take the fight out of them." 
And then, like, then we would see the jitterbug, whose move is, like, that he makes them dance un- uncontrollably. <laughs> and it's a great song. And this, like, frankly, they do kind of need a song here. And I would just like to retroactively fight for its inclusion in the final cut of the movie. So this is the thing that they did because they thought they needed to attract a youthful audience. So they were like, oh, we're going to have a scene where they have a series of musical contests. Because so there's the the lore is that in Oz, there's no music allowed except uh, like classical and operetta. And so then uh, the princess challenges Dorothy to a singing contest and Dorothy does like swing music and everyone's like, oh, and wins the prize, which is just so funny to me. Like, I just want to see the version of this from the 90s where Dorothy raps. You know what I mean? <laughs> Do you really? Dorothy does. I mean, it's like it's it's basically top that from uh, uh, which. Uh, what is it? I'm going to have to look. None of you guys know what I'm talking about. Top that uh, is from Teen Witch from let's call it 1989. All right, old man. <laughs> Fair enough. I was five years old. (laughs) (laughs) The group returns to the wizard with the broomstick. He tells them, uh, come back tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And uh, Toto pulls back a curtain. The wizard is revealed to be just a guy. In fact, the same guy uh, operating machinery. The same guy as Professor Marvel. Yeah. And and the doorman. And the doorman. It's the the guy we've been, we know this. Why know that face? And then uh, our buddies confront him and he confesses that he's just a guy from America who talks his way out of things. And then he talks his way out of things and gives them tokens that symbolize that they've always had the things that they were searching for. He offers Dorothy a ride in his hot air balloon and he leaves all the buddies in charge of Oz. Is that a thing he can do? Is he empowered to do that? <laughs> like, why? What about the Scarecrow has made you be like, yes, this man should hold political office. You gave this man a brain and he immediately <laughs> recited the Pythagorean theorem wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's just a moment again where, like, no consequences for the wizard. He's no. just yeah, like, he yeah, just yeah, turns out, out I wasn't actually wizard at all. Bye. Good yeah. luck. Right, Here and then Toto jumps out of the balloon and it goes. <laughs> They'll fix it. Yeah, I feel like fine. he just appeases the people of the Emerald City with nice things. He's like, ah, uh, as long as as long as they're fed, they won't care. Right. Hey, the trains run on time. Yeah. Right. Literally, they only have to work for an hour. <laughs> yeah. Look, the purple horses get there on time. <laughs> Emerald City is like the one percent. You know, like they don't, they don't care. And he's like, yeah, it turns out we're corrupt. They're like, we, we know, we know. It's, you're really a figurehead. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. So Dor- Toto jumps out of the balloon. Dorothy runs after him. The balloon lifts off without them. Glinda reappears and tells Dorothy that she had the power to return to Kansas with the help of the ruby slippers, but she had to find out for herself. After sharing a tearful farewell with her friends, she misses the Scarecrow the most. Dorothy uh, taps her heels three times, repeats there's no place like home. She goes back to Kansas and everyone was there. There's no place like home. That's it. End of movie. So we, we touched on it a little bit, but yeah, there was a moment uh, that was removed from the script where Hunk, who's the version of the Scarecrow in Kansas, is leaving for agricultural college, and he and he and Dorothy have this moment where they imply a romance between them. They promise to write each other, and that maybe that is why Dorothy has a predilection towards the Scarecrow over the others. It's not satisfying. No, his name is Hunk. Like, <laughs> you know the other two guys? What are the other two? 
It's uh, Hunk. Their name's Slovenly and Uncle. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, you know, the other two actors are like, man, I didn't get called in for Hunk. Yeah, I know. Hey, we should switch again. I want to be Hunk. Yeah. <laughs> That's so odd because I feel like, uh, like implying the romance because it's like, do they want Dorothy to be a teenager or right like, or like do you want her to be 12 or not <laughs> she's not a girl not yet a woman it's like that Britney Spears song. <laughs> oh really but it's like she they bind her breasts so she doesn't have boobs so they want her to be flat chested so she's a kid but then they give her this glow up in Oz where she has like the hair and everything and it's like okay mm. and then like maybe having this romantic relationship but I don't know what do they want from her I feel like this is the question we ask all women is what do you want from us? <laughs> yes. And and in the 30s, especially, I feel like you had two options. You could either be hypersexualized or not. Not that they didn't hypersexualize children, um, sexualize children at all. They definitely did. But I feel like they wanted this sort of virginal, innocent, ingenue the character and felt like the only way they could do that was obviously to go like very childlike oh i didn't know that it was this way blah 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 so that she's learning because i feel like it's the 30s and if she had had any sense of like sexuality or any hinted adolescence i feel like it's all too easy for society in the 30s to be like she was just a hysterical woman and it was all just her her crazy woman hormones that made her do all those crazy things. Mm-hmm. But even then, of course, there's got to be a hint of like, but there is a handsome man. And so probably, you know, in the for the sake of heteronormativity, probably those two will get together at some point in the future. If you keep doing that Cracker Jack Judy Garland impression, I think we got a, a, show, a show on our hands, frankly. I think I think we're going to write a show. D- Darren can write the screenplay. You play Judy Garland. Steph directs. I'll play my uncle, Victor Fleming. And, uh, Are we into pitching now? Yeah, yeah I, I, I was going to say, let's spin this. What do you guys what do you guys want to see from a remake? So I wanted to stick a pin in something we talked about earlier when we were talking about the Munchkinland sequence, because I always wondered like, okay, so the Wicked Witch of the East, she is already in Munchkinland when the house lands on her. They're thankful that the witch is dead because apparently she's been terrorizing them. So I kind of want to see like a film just about like how the Wicked, the Wicked Witch of the East, how she got to Munchkinland. What happens that makes her turn crazy and start terrorizing the munchkins? The munchkin uprising with all of the unions and the guilds. Mm -hmm. Love it. And then finally, like the climax of it, though, is when Dorothy's house lands on the witch and how like everyone's happy. But is everyone happy or maybe is there a munchkin who like loved her? You know, um, or maybe there's a munchkin who's like, oh, my God, this person from nowhere, from Kansas, what is that? Comes and steals my thunder. Like, I was going to be the one to kill the witch. Right. I don't know. I love that. I just feel like there is a whole story of what happens, what happened, what happened in munchkin land before Dorothy got there. Wait, and can I, I, okay, I want to add a pitch to your, I want to pitch back. (laughs) I don't, there's a word for this. But like, so I love the idea, right, that the climax at intermission is the house lands. And then the second half is like what happens in the power vacuum after the Wicked Witch of the East. And like we have all of these different political factions and like, you know, we we can have this great like populist union storyline. But like that means right there we have all these competing. Oh, 
Darren, it's brilliant. Yeah, I because love that's it. the problem is like when you topple um, dic- dictatorships, when dictatorships are toppled, there's usually a power vacuum. And then if, if you're not careful, something even worse can emerge out of that. You don't want to see what happens when the coroner is, is king. Right, right. So it's like a political, it's it, it's a political thriller yeah. set in Munch. Yes. The Munchkarian candidate. The Munchkarian. I was even thinking like that movie Chinatown where it's like, <laughs> uh, this, this is crazy. It's just Munchkin Forget land. Forget it, Jake. It's Munchkin land. Yeah. But I love the idea of the gritty noir with yeah. the Munchkin land aesthetic. <laughs> the like bright Munchkin land aesthetic. Yes, I love that. Like, you know, the the dirty underbelly of Munchkin land. I also love this idea that like, we're looking at it from an outside perspective. And in comes Dorothy, this like, cute looking white girl who murders someone and gets away with it and murders someone and gets away with it. And things seem to be just falling into place with her. I love what Darren said about what if there's another character who's trying to do the right thing. And it just keeps happening for Dorothy magically. And the media is receiving it well in Munchkin land and the people love her and it's all just happening and she's not even trying. And there's an Mm -hmm. actual like Munchkin of the people like working to make things better. But Dorothy is just like (laughs) succeeding because it's sort of this this cycle that just keeps happening. I think there's something really interesting there. Yeah. Everything Dorothy does ruins that munchkin's life in some way. Like that munchkin's like, well, okay, at least everything else is messed up, but at least I can go gather my poppies for selling. And then it's like, what the fuck happened to my poppy field? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And then he sees a little dog prince. He's like, oh my God, Dorothy. It's that witch from Kansas. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Or, like, I've always had this idea, I know Wicked goes into this with, like, Alphaba, but this idea that, like, Miss Gulch, because I hated her as a kid, because she was like, let's kill the dog. But, like, what is this story from Miss Gulch's perspective? Like, what if she wasn't a terrible person? What if Dorothy is, like, a menace in her life and Toto was, like, the worst? Like, sort of these just alternate perspectives that we don't get to see. The Wicked in the real world. Do you think for that to sell... Toto needs to not be like a 10 pound adorable dog. Like I am going to need Toto to feel scary if he is to threaten. I don't know. I told y'all about that crusty little chihuahua. (laughs) That dog could have given me a variety of, of infections like easily. (laughs) So honestly, I'm not saying I see where Miss Gulch is coming from. I'm just saying that maybe Maybe she needed more of a platform to explain herself. You know, it's funny. The audience can't see this, but Danny is actually wearing a t-shirt and it says, Elvira Gulch made a few good points. <laughs> yeah. And and I didn't plan that. Um, it's something I already had that I just like. I, I will say that my headcanon is that because then when they get to Ozzy, it would still be a problem that Miss Gulch has this injunction from the sheriff about Toto. But my headcanon is that Miss Gulch dies in the tornado. <laughs> More no, convenient no plot. No harm. Just yeah. getting wrapped up. Well, let's 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 move on to the our final sort of chapter here, which is that uh, you know when whenever they remake a movie, you guys know this, Danny Darren, that uh, uh, they always add a song to get a best original song nomination at the Oscars, right? Mm-hmm. So we've talked about so in our in our forget it, Jake, it's Munchkinland uh, reboot. Uh, we're gonna need a new song you know, to get that Best Original Song nomination Oscar, which, by the way, this movie won with Somewhere Over the Rainbow. So that's what I've written here. Now, part of the concept, let me tell you guys this, too, because you're both very accomplished uh, musical actors and improvisers. Part of the concept of me writing a song for all these movies is that I don't know how to do that. I am not a (laughs) musical composer. I can't read music. It scares me. 
and so I just do the best I can to clump things together and try and figure out how to write a song for this. So I've written a song. The song I've written is for the wizard, okay? Because the wizard doesn't have a song. It's basically the uh, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain moment, right? All he tells them is come back tomorrow. And they're like, wait a minute, this is bullshit. Let's uncover this guy. But what interests me is like, who is this guy who gives himself this big facade of this big, scary face? Like, you would have to be so small inside to project that, you know, and it's like Donald Trump. Like, that's like, that's (laughs) what Donald Trump thinks he looks like is the wizard's face. You know what I mean? (laughs) When really he looks like that guy behind the curtain. And so this is the wizard song that I wrote. We're going to listen to for one minute and 55 seconds. It is called Come Back Tomorrow, parentheses, Take That, Deborah. Here we go. Do you know who I am? The power you see? They call me the wizard. I rule all from O to Z. All these plebes fear me. And for that, they're correct. So come back tomorrow, you sad set of insects. One more thing. I run Emerald City. Over all this, I sit. So I guess my fifth grade teacher's wrong. I'm actually not a dimwit. (laughs) And even a blind man could see my potency. So clearly I'm not impotent, as my ex-wife says about me. Forget (laughs) I said those last few things. Kindly make your way to the door. (laughs) Just come back tomorrow. The wizard will see you no more. But first, as you stand before me and gaze at my crown, I think you'll see Deborah was wrong. My hairline is not a ghost town. My power's all reaching. Just look at my size. So take that, Deborah. I'm not, quote, smaller than average lengthwise. Everyone <laughs> around me can feel my divinity. So it's not like Deborah said. I don't reek of fragile masculinity. I don't ooze fragile masculinity. I don't understand fragile masculinity. <laughs> so come back tomorrow. Wizards close for the day. And if you see Deborah, please tell her I'm clearly not latently gay. And another thing, Deborah. What's pulling me? Ow! Can you please control your dog? It's being a total Deborah right now. <laughs> Paid no attention uh, to the lip-dicked cuck behind the curtain. Deborah's words, not mine. Oh, balls. <laughs> I didn't really have an ending there, but. In- uh... Incredible. I love it. <laughs> being Thank a total you. Deborah. Yeah. Look, we all know, you know, and look, obviously it's not a bad thing to be latently gay, but doesn't that seem like the kind of thing Deborah would say? Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right there with And you. the kind of thing that would really get to this guy. In 1939, that would be a huge no-no. That's true. That's a problem. Well, <laughs> uh, as good a time as any to mention that the only place to, that you can find all the songs that we create here on Musical the Movie the Podcast is our Patreon at patreon.com slash dumbfun, which is the entire Dumb Fun family of podcasts, which includes Fanny Falls Demon Hunter, which is about halfway through its 13-episode run right now, a fake rewatch show uh, where me and Steph Weber play uh, old washed-up 90s stars talking about a show that we were on in the 90s that's very much like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And uh, and then, of course, 30 Characters, which is just a dumb cavalcade of improv fun uh, with me and Joe Fernandez and Matt Riggs and a guest every month. But yeah, so check out our Patreon. Steph is officially a full-time nursing student, so please donate some money to our Patreon so that we can uh, eat dinner. Um, <laughs> Steph, do you uh, do you have something that you want to plug for uh, our listeners for this episode? Yeah, I do. I want to plug starting a podcast. Have I done that one yet? <laughs> I don't think I have. 
I uh, I really have just like had the time of my life uh, getting to watch musical movies and like getting to have awesome conversations like these. I don't mean to sound like a youth pastor and like that's the only word that I know. Yeah, check out uh, Danny's podcast that's coming out soon. Uh, the thing you like but feminist. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, uh, Danny, what do you have coming up that, that you want to plug or or stuff that's out there? Uh, yeah, feel free to check out dannypike.com. I have a bunch of cool stuff on there. Me singing, me acting, me doing all the things. And I'm uh, getting ready to release some more exciting, fun stuff on there that I'm working on over the holidays. Uh, so yeah, keep an eye on that. I'll have some fun stuff coming out soon. And just thanks so much. This was a blast. I, yeah. I'm just so flabbergasted and feel lucky that you reached out and i had a blast doing this and i, I can't yeah, wait to new listen friend of the show uh darren what about you what's going on um yeah so i'm in shamilton on fridays at second city uh and on saturdays at io i'm in improvised jane austen and uh in oh, yeah. the io long form ensemble so Woo-hoo. lots of improv lots of fun things happening and finishing up grad school but if you go to darrenrobinson.com you can see it's d-a-r-y-n robinson.com uh you'll see like my show schedule and stuff like that yeah Yeah. you guys both have websites which a lot of our guests don't nor do we as a podcast i mean that's fair okay (laughs) look look we all have some things we need um I'll just also mention, by the way, if you're in the Chicago or Louisville area, uh, we are doing the Muppet Roast, where uh, Character Assassination is doing a uh, uh, all the Muppets roasting each other. It's going to be stupid. And uh, it's going to be in Louisville at the Bardstown December 2nd and 3rd. And it's going to be in Chicago at the Laugh Factory on December 4th, Sunday, December 4th. Uh, Danny, Darren, what a delight to have Truly, you guys on. Truly, thank you so much. This is incredible. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Anytime. And for the listener, get ready because the holiday season is upon us. So our next movie is going to... In fact, our next uh, release date is November 28th. It's sort of right between Halloween and Christmas. So what can Mm, we do, Steph, that's right between Halloween and Christmas? In the middle of Halloween, obviously, it's going to be the Nightmare Before Christmas. I'm so excited. The Nightmare Before Christmas is going to be our next episode. Check that out thought we'd do so much tim burton so soon <laughs> and our first disney by the way oh uh, wow 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 so, what, a, what a treat so will be. come for that in two weeks on the off weeks check out fanny falls demon hunter and uh yeah that's it bye everybody bye thank you musical the movie the podcast musical the movie the podcast musical the movie the podcast with andy and steph fun dumb